Wine and Crime contains graphic and explicit content which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Listening to Wine and Crime, the podcast where three friends chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash their worst Minnesotan accents. Oh mm. yeah, and We're eat here. snacks. Oh yeah, yum. I just made some hummus, hummus, my bitch. <laughs> okay, <laughs> she didn't stand a chance, bro. <laughs> I think hummus made you its bitch. I don't know. I haven't shit myself yet, so we'll we'll see. For now, time will tell. For now, it's Amanda one hummus eaten hourglass emoji. Oh God, it's so <laughs> ominous. So ominous. Yeah, Lucy likes to scare the bejesus out of me and Amanda that was an by accident. just texting uh-huh. the hourglass emoji when you know we're running out of time. Yeah, you uh, know what you did. You're like a death not clock. Intentional. I mean, it is TikTok. now. It's intentional now. TikTok, bitch. TikTok. I'm about to show up at your house. You're one the minute closer to ticking. death. Oh my god! Happy birthday! You're one year closer to death. <laughs> okay. I have a birthday card. I literally just was thinking, I'm pretty sure you gave me a birthday card that said that like two years, like when I turned 30 or something. It some said, shit. You're almost there, the Grim oh Reaper. Oh. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right. Well, this week we have a very special episode mm-hmm. brought to you by us because mm-hmm. it is Hog Girl Summer. Hog Girl Summer, baby. <laughs> and so we have selected the topic of. Innocence Project. Yeah. yeah. Which another heavy hitter episode that we haven't gotten to yet. Mm-hmm. Which this is one exciting. Just fell right into our laps. It really it did. Sure did. We got, a, we got a lovely email from the co-founder of the California Innocence Project. Mm-hmm. And we were like, why, well, yes, we would love to speak to you because yeah. you, what you do is incredible. So... We will get to that, but first, uh, Amanda, what is our wine crime pairing for the Innocence Project? Well, I wanted to pair something a little bit fun, so I found this winery out of Oregon called St. Innocent Winery. Oh. Oh. And they have a lovely Pinot Blanc on their roster, and I don't know if I have ever paired a Pinot Blanc. I'm sure it's, I've paired it like as part of blends. Sure. But I don't think I've ever done it as like a full-blown PB. Know what I'm saying? Pinot Blanc. Yeah. So these tasting notes ask you to imagine sticking your nose in a box of fresh, ripe peaches on an okay. ocean beach mm. with the salt in the air about to swallow a fresh oyster. Oh. 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 I have never been so transported so in my life heaven yeah <laughs> yep so the palette of this wine follows that kind of like beachfront no worries hakuna matata theme mm-hmm. it's uh it's gonna be kind of peachy on the front end followed by pear and then a really Oyster. nice kind of Mm, yeah, a little Salty. minerality, a little salt, a little texture. It's just like a really complex white wine. Mm. 
And so the way that this grape is grown is under like long hours of sun and, and hot during the day. But then this nice, cool nighttime, like overnight cool nap. Mm. And then because this is grown like, you know, on the like near the Oregon coast, you're going to get some of that salinity as a result of like very old ocean floor. That's now the land that we walk on. <laughs> so fucking crazy. <laughs> what? Crazy. All right. Well, I mean, you get some of that like you get specific types of soil on more Place like to see soil. Oh, sure. Mm. On more like coastal. Dinosaur dung. Soil. Sure. Some dung. Mm. Old seashells. Yeah. This is this vineyard particularly is located in the foothills of the coast, which is like 10 miles southwest of Salem, Oregon. I didn't even know they had a Salem. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who knows? But these are this yield comes from vines that have been growing since 1993. So they this is like the same hardy yield from those same vines that they planted years ago which My i think is pretty fucking case cool. takes place in 1993 no way what the fuck pleistocene yep anyway this is an uh, incredible wine to go with oysters clams other delicious seafood crab mm-hmm. sashimi you know oh and also it's just gonna be fucking good so check it out you can order their wines online from i think it's saintinnocentwine.com and they have a lot of really cool stuff and they ship and i think they also offer a wine club which i always love Mm, love a club yeah so uh shall we pop yeah all right here we go salty oyster briny peachy pop (laughs) fucking dinosaur dung y'all the land we're now walking on pop the land before time uh, pop (laughs) (laughs) I had a really good how do you say it Shannon Blanc Shannon Blanc yeah yeah last night and I was like I need to have more of this. I yeah. love Shannon Blanc. That shit's it's good. So mm-hmm. fucking good. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. And Lucy, do you want to tell us about your very special background in psych segment for the Innocence Project? Well, I sure as fuck do. But oh, not shit. before I tell you about the Innocence Project overall. Okay. okay. So Innocence Project Incorporated is a 501c3 nonprofit legal organization that is committed to exonerating individuals who have been wrongly convicted through the use of DNA testing Mm. and working to reform the criminal justice system to prevent future injustices, injustices. So every single case they take is wrongful conviction through DNA or like the exoneration is always through DNA. I don't think so. Not every uh, Mine I, does not involve mm, DNA. As far okay. As I know. Well, my understanding is that they do not take cases that are just. Well, their primary. You know what? We'll get to it. Let's okay. let's ha- we let's answer this when I'm done with my part. Okay. So they estimate that somewhere between one and ten percent of all prisoners in the United States are innocent. That is That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As of 2021, the Innocence Project has helped to successfully overturn over 300 convictions through DNA-based exonerations. Damn. 
Their stated mission is, quote, to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated and bring reform to the justice system responsible for their unjust imprisonment. Yes. So the Innocence Project focuses exclusively on post-conviction appeals in which DNA evidence is available to be tested or retested. Mm. DNA testing is possible in 5 to 10% of criminal cases. Other so maybe... So my case is, is related to who you spoke with, but maybe it wasn't an official Innocence Project case. Mm. And maybe that's why the DNA testing was not relevant. Okay. We'll get to it. Okay. Mine it, is definitely an Innocence Project case because I pulled it from the from their website. They have like a whole list of exonerations that they specifically like had a hand, had a role in. So the whole point of them focusing on DNA evidence is because the whole Innocence Project was founded in the wake of a study by the U.S. Department of Justice and the U.S. Senate in conjunction with Yeshiva University's Benjamin N. Cardoza School of Law, which looked at the fallibility of eyewitness testimony. Right. So basically, Mm -hmm. when they discovered how fucked up eyewitness testimony was and was able to quantify that, Uh they were like, "Ooh, we cannot rely on this anymore. We have got to to find different evidence. Damn. Mm -hmm. So it concluded that incorrect identification by eyewitnesses was a factor in over 70 percent of wrongful convictions. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's crazy unreliable, dude. Mm -hmm. So that's why they focus exclusively on DNA evidence. That makes sense. Because it can be pretty incontrovertible if you were like no really this other person it's their come right yeah exactly. we know yeah the Look, amount hard there's to his sperm with. that one's name is hank it looks just like him <laughs> the like, amount of work that goes into these innocence project cases is so fucking extreme and vast yeah. takes years that they have to have airtight evidence right right it makes sense other members of the innocence network also help to exonerate those in whose cases dna testing is not possible got it so there are it's not and it's not the innocence project does focus on dna but there is an innocence network yep that is that these are two different technically two different things Okay. So the Innocence right. Network, is my understanding, is a network of lawyers who work uh-huh. on this kind of stuff. And the Innocence Project is lawyers and also they have their own people labs who are experts in the, the DNA stuff. Right, okay. right, 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 right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So as Kenyon mentioned, I had the privilege of talking to Professor Justin Brooks, who is a professor of law at California Western School of Law in San Diego. And he is the director and co-founder of the California Innocence Project. He's so smart and so funny and very handsome. Mm. <laughs> he wrote the only legal casebook devoted to the topic of wrongful convictions. Wow. And he has founded and supported several innocence projects in Latin America. He's doing an enormous amount of incredibly valuable work. And I had a very insightful conversation with him a few weeks ago. So let's just scoot right along. Have a listen to that interview. Absolutely. So I have Professor Justin Brooks with us today from the California Innocence Project. Thank you for being here with us. It's my pleasure. And you are the director and co-founder, is that right? That is correct. And you're also a professor of law? Yep. So we recently learned the difference between a lawyer and an attorney. Are you a practicing attorney? 
I am a licensed practicing attorney. I'm licensed in four states. Wow. So you're a smart guy. Reasonably. (laughs) So we know a little bit about the Innocence Project. Tell us about specifics about the California Innocence Project. I would assume that California being a really large state with kind of unique legal codes, at least that's how it seems from an outsider. How does how does this Innocence Project organization differ from, let's say, one in Mississippi? Well, I think it differs in the same sense our country differs state to state. You know, one of the things whenever I'm traveling around the world talking about criminal justice issues is people don't understand how unique the United States is and that we have 50-some penal codes and that on one side of the street, something can get you the death penalty, that on the other side of the street can get you 20 years in prison and somewhere drugs are legal and other places they're not. That's very unique to the United States and only a few other countries. So uh, the California Innocence Project reflects California. We are a massive state. We are the most populous state. We have had the largest prison population for most of the past 20 years. We had the most people on death row until it recently was suspended. So I moved to California back in 1999 to start the California Innocence Project. That time, there were just a handful of us doing this work around the world. And there were about four or five innocence organizations in the United States. So I started it here because this was uh, the biggest challenge. It was the the largest state with the most people in custody. And uh, since then, we've been freeing innocent people from prison. We just walked out our 40th innocent person. That's amazing. So this is an actual question, but how do you sleep at night? (laughs) Like, given the enormity and the consequence of the work that you do, like I get hives just kind of thinking about that kind of pressure. Uh, You know, I don't sleep well at night. I haven't in... decades. (laughs) So I usually sleep around 12 to 5. That is the hardest part about this work. I spend a lot of time talking about it with my lawyers and my law students that, you know, you will have a lot of dead bodies in your head. You will have a lot of crime scenes in your head. And and you've got to do mentally healthy things to counter that as best you can. But no matter what, this work will pile up on you and be, uh, be emotionally difficult. Is there like kind of a line where... I would imagine that this kind of work, I would have kind of doubts in my own mind about a specific individual's innocence or guilt. Obviously, you do a ton of research and you and you know their background, but ethically, morally, do you personally question like a case by case basis if a person is deserving of the work that you're doing for them for their case? Every single day. So we receive about 6,000 requests for assistance a year. And with every single case, a law student will look into it and they'll get copies of transcripts. They'll talk to the trial lawyers and the appellate lawyers and an initial investigation will be done. And then twice a week, there's presentations in my office where I have the awful Caesar-like power of thumbs up or thumbs down. And most of the time, my thumb is down um, because – and it's not necessarily that I think they're guilty – It's just that for the overwhelming majority of the cases, I know from my 30 years doing this that we're not going to be able to prove it. And it's heartbreaking because there are a lot of innocent people who get locked up who will never have a chance of getting out. And, you know, for example, we get a ton of people writing to us saying they're innocent of drug crimes. And the problem with drug crimes is they only have two elements. And that is you had drugs 
and you knew you had drugs. And if the jury doesn't believe your story that you were just catching a ride home with your friend, the car gets pulled over, your friend has cocaine in the car, now you might very well be innocent. But I know from my experience, I can't do anything with that case because once the jury didn't believe that you didn't know there were drugs in the car, it's over. And that's the hardest part of this work. It's not so much that, you know, I'm worried that we might represent a guilty person. There's no chance we'll ever free a guilty person because the standard is so high to prove innocence. And that's our burden that I know that's never happened. And I know it's never going to happen. But what does happen every day is we turn down innocent people. And that's very difficult. Are there any specific cases that stand out to you that you can think of that maybe was uniquely challenging, kind of digging for one that had a good outcome? (laughs) Sure. Well, I just sat down for the past year and gave thought to that because a publisher asked me to write a book about my 30 years of experience freeing innocent people from prison. And my new book, which is called You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent, uh, is now available. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, it's now available. It is a scary title, and it's a scary book in a lot of ways, but it's now available for sale on Amazon and wherever they sell books these days. Uh, so uh, many cases stand out in my mind, some that were very complex and required you know, DNA evidence to kind of unwind. Other ones are as simple as you know, the case I'm probably most well-known for is the Brian Banks case, because a movie was made out of it, and, uh, and my client ended up playing in the NFL after he was exonerated. But Brian was just a simple case where a 15-year-old classmate, when he was 16, accused him of rape. And uh, it, his lawyer ended up pleading his case out, and he went to prison for six years. And the girl then came forward and Facebook friend requested him and then oh. said, can we let bygones be bygones? I'm sorry I made that stuff up about you raping me in high school. And, you know, so a wrongful conviction could be as simple as just somebody tells a lie. But then, you know, you have other cases that are so difficult to unwind based on the forensic evidence. And I've had many cases like that. The most complex are our baby death cases where children have died in accidental ways. And we have the Herculean task of proving that. And we've done it a number of times. One of my clients named Suzanne Johnson got convicted after a baby fell out of a high chair. And she spent many decades in prison. Alan Jimenez, another one of my clients, spent decades in prison. Ken Marsh spent 20 years in prison, even though his girlfriend said over and over again that this baby fell off a couch. Because the doctors didn't see that the baby had a blood disorder which is what caused excessive bruising. They didn't believe that the baby could have been injured that way from a short fall. And so those cases are very, very difficult. And what my book does is I go through what I've deemed as sort of the top 10 causes of wrongful conviction. In fact, that's what I wanted to call the book, but my publisher said it was too clickbaity. <laughs> it's a listicle. <laughs> I thought clickbaity was good, but evidently. Yeah. They don't want to sell as many books as I do. But, uh, you know, and then and the leading one that I spend a lot of time in my book talking about is bad identifications. Jurors put a lot of weight when someone walks into a courtroom and says, I'm 100 percent sure that's the person who committed the crime. And we now know after studying identification procedures and how people's memory worked, that that is not very good evidence. It's not Mm -hmm. very strong at all. And yet I see client after client convicted on that alone, just a simple identification. You would think that a jury would need 
a lot more hard evidence than just eyewitness testimony. Well, they absolutely should. But I'll give you an example of an outrageous case of that. My client, Raphael Madrigal, was working 30 miles away from a crime scene in a factory on the line when a shooting happened. He got convicted based on a cross-racial identification, which are typically the worst, um, people identifying people not of their own race, uh, done of a photo taken when he was a teenager and he was nearly 30 when the crime happened. Uh, we were able to prove definitively that he was working at the exact moment of this shooting because the owner of the factory said he was the only one trained to use this laminating equipment in the middle of the assembly line, and the whole factory would have shut down if he wasn't at work. We got 10 witnesses that put him there. We got his time cards that put him at work. But his lawyer failed to do that investigation. And then we also, on top of that, got a jail phone call where the guy who actually committed the crime is talking to his girlfriend saying, I don't know who this guy Rafael Madrigal is, but he went to prison uh, for his crime that I committed. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And that was enough for the jury. The jury heard this one woman comes in and says, that's the guy. He did it. Nothing else. No, no motive. No physical evidence. Nothing linking him to this crime. And that's a frightening thought because as the chapter of my book is called, you look like other people in the world. <laughs> because yeah. if you remotely look like other people in the world, you could be wrongfully convicted. Well, especially like you said, that uh, cross-racial identification, you know, identifying someone outside of your own race, that's that uh, this, this just seems so problematic. There should be like, I don't know if legislation is the answer to making rules about jury decisions. I don't even know if that's possible, but that just seems like a big load of bullshit. It is. And we we have got legislation passed finally in California. The county of Los Angeles, the largest county in the United States, has fought us for years about changing their identification procedures because they don't comply with any of the scientific principles. And now they have to do things like for example, you can't have an officer who's investigating the case involved in the ID procedure because they know who the suspect is in a lineup, and they always have tells because they're horrible poker players. And mm -hmm. so the witness will say something like, well, it kind of looks like number three, and then the officer will say, good job, okay, good. And now in the witness's head, it goes from it kind of looks like number three to by the time they come to court, they're saying, I'm 100% sure it's that dude. Yeah, it's like positive reinforcement. Exactly. And that's particularly true in violent crimes. I mean, in rape cases, for example, the victim obviously has a desperate need to have the person caught and off the street and feel safe. And all that psychology, I don't want to say the police take advantage of that, but the combination of that fragile a witness in that situation, and then they're given assurances this is the right person, is how you end up getting a wrongful conviction. Yeah, the way that your brain can alter your memories, that you can be 100% sure that your memory is accurate, it's just, it's wild to me. Yeah, you can even change your own memories. I talk about that in my book, that if you tell a story three or four times and you change a fact, by the fifth or sixth time, you're sitting there thinking, D is this the real story or did I just make that up? Like, you literally can't remember yourself. And with children, and another tough area we deal with a lot are molestation cases, children can start to fabricate memories if they're not questioned correctly. And they can start to introduce information that the questioner is feeding them into their answers. 
And so, for example, you can convince a four-year-old with just a few suggestions that you already took them to Disneyland if they want to go to Disneyland. <laughs> oh, this is helpful. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you have young children or nephews or nieces, but all you got to do is say to like a four-year-old, you say, you know, I took you to Disneyland. Remember I bought you that red dress at Disneyland? And the child is confused because you bought them a red dress, but not at Disneyland. And then when they're sitting there trying to trying to reconcile that, you say, remember, I got you that cherry Coke at Disneyland? And you just keep combining true facts with a false memory of Disneyland. And after like four or five suggestions, they literally have a memory of going to Disneyland. And it's cheap. There's no lines to stand on. You don't have to <laughs> fly anywhere. It's a cheap way to fuck up your kids. Yeah, my kids grew up basically in the Matrix. They're totally unsure <laughs> of what their childhood <laughs> is true or not. I mean... Because you're really only remembering the last time you remembered a situation. Exactly. In, in some respects. And you can't, and sometimes you can't, what's really weird about social media now and, and the, the fact that people are constantly inundated with images, which is really a new phenomenon. I mean, it used to be, okay, you took some photos, you sent them to Rite Age, you get them back in an envelope. But, you know, now it's just thousands and thousands of Im images a day. It's hard to separate what you see through those images and what you see in real life. And you can't sort out those memories. It's just our brain is not a recording device. It just picks up bits and pieces of information through our five senses and then stores them in different parts of our brain. And then our memories, when we're reconstructing those bits of information, and we often just reconstruct it incorrectly. Yeah. So we are way more fallible than we'd like to think we are. Yeah, I mean, identification evidence, jurors act like it's the greatest thing in the world, and it's pretty weak. And again, I'm saying not if you know the person. Like, if you know the person and you're going in court and saying, yeah, that's my friend Bob who stole mm -hmm. my car, sure. But when it's a, a crime situation, you've only seen that person during the crime. There's so many things that go wrong. I mean, another thing is, is we only we focus on what's most important to us. So if there's a weapon involved in a crime, we always focus on the weapon. And so we will not have a memory of the person's face, but we'll remember the weapon. Any type of stress distorts memory and makes it more difficult to retain a memory. So all these studies have now shown us that these identifications are extremely weak. And it, it's probably the leading cause of wrongful conviction in the United States is bad identification. That is terrifying. So how much of your work is, let's say helping to get someone released who is already in prison and how much, if any, is like a post-sentence exoneration, like it's like they're just cleared of wrongdoing, even if they've already served their sentence? Well, there's only one client I've ever taken on who wasn't incarcerated because we just have so much work to do that we have to prioritize people who are incarcerated. And the only client was Brian Banks who um, the movie was made about that you can watch on Hulu tonight if you have Hulu. Um, but um, in Brian's case, it just so saddened me because he was one of the best football players in the country. He was on his way to USC on a full scholarship. He gets this accusation against him, and no one does anything about it. And even when this woman's fully recanted, he still has this conviction hanging over his head, and that meant he'd be a lifetime sex offender He'd have to be registering constantly. He had to wear an ankle monitor. And it just was so tragic to me that, he, you know, he said to me, look, I, I am still in prison and will always be in prison with this crime hanging over my head. So we took that case on. But in general, we do not represent people who are not incarcerated just because we have so much work to do. Mm -hmm. 
I know like DNA evidence that is always evolving. Obviously, we have all this genealogy stuff that is really big right now since, you know, the Golden State Killer and a lot of other high profile cases. Do do you see a lot of that kind of forensic evidence sort of increasing in the work that you do? Yeah, in some ways it's increasing, in other ways it's decreasing. So, for example, when DNA hit the scene in the mid-90s, it really changed everything. Uh, All of a sudden we had this gold standard forensic technology that no one could debate. And before DNA, to be honest with you, people didn't, uh, a lot of people didn't believe there were any innocent people in prison. And I would have a lot of arguments with people about cases And that's, by the way, again, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because 20 years ago, the argument was, are there any innocent people in prison? Now that we've documented more than 3,300 cases of wrongful conviction, the question is more to why? Why are innocent people in prison? And that's what I wanted to address in the book. But DNA initially, all the low-hanging fruit was dealt with. So, for example, old rape kits that were never tested and things like that were dealt with immediately. But now DNA has evolved in different ways. Like, for example, we now can do DNA testing without having the root of a hair because we can do mitochondrial DNA testing. And so that's allowed us to go back and look at old cases where they had hair samples but didn't have the roots of the hair. Like, let's say, you know, hair on a victim's clothing from an attack. So there's new developments every year in science, and they always open up new avenues for us to review cases. And fortunately, in states like California, we now require the government to maintain the evidence while the person's incarcerated, which wasn't true when I started my project. Back then, most evidence was thrown out. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> that's awful. Oh, yeah. In 70% of the homicide cases and rape cases I looked at in the first few years— there was nothing I could do because the evidence was thrown out. Wow. So, you know, the judge isn't going to let you out of prison when you're saying, I know if they had that rape kit, it would have tested and not been me. So you're out of luck when they've thrown the evidence out. How much, in your opinion, because I don't know how provable this is, but how much does racism play a factor in wrongful convictions? Well, that is chapter 10 of my book. (laughs) Perfect. Number 10 reason you may end up in prison is you're poor and or a person of color. First of all, you know, when people try to argue with me that the criminal legal system is not racist, you're basically saying society is not racist because uh, the criminal legal system is just a microcosm where people come from the community every day and go into buildings and make decisions. So they bring all their frailties, any racist tendency they have, all their biases come with them. And therefore, it's clear that that's going to impact the system. And if you take a 30,000-foot view and look at the statistics, it is readily apparent that race deeply impacts who gets convicted. There's studies that have been done using virtual reality where people have watched trials and the only thing they change is the race of the defendant and we see widely different verdicts and sentences. And where we really see race impacting is race of the victim because when the victim is a person of color, you see clearly less empathy by the majority of the population. And that is human nature, by the way. Now we can do something about that by being aware of it, but when people wake up in the morning and they hear about an earthquake, in India or somewhere they've never been, they're less concerned about it 
than if it's something they can relate to, than if it's the United States or in their state or somebody, or they went on vacation someplace once and now that's having an earthquake. Human beings only have a capacity to care about so much and mm-hmm. they care about what they relate to and they have empathy for what they relate to. So when they look across the courtroom and they see a defendant who looks like their son and looks like their father, looks like their loved one, they're going to have more empathy for that person. And it's the same way when a victim is someone who looks like a family member. And all the studies confirm that. Um, In fact, there's now a a new phenomenon called white women syndrome, which is when a white woman is lost, it's always a news story. And if that white woman is found dead, it becomes a bigger news story. Mm -hmm. And now a spotlight will be on that case and a prosecutor will step into that spotlight and say, I'm going to seek the death penalty. And then that case will get a lot more media attention, a lot more pressure to convict. And then in California, they'll probably name a law after the victim in that case. It'll be Mary's law or Sandy's law because we have several laws literally named after white women who are murdered. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just think we need to be aware of these things and conscious of it because bias exists. All this stuff exists. We can't pretend it doesn't. Otherwise, we're never going to make it better. But... And in some ways, it's harder to battle, right? Because overt racism in the law, if you go back to the 1950s and earlier in the 1960s as well, where literally you could look at the face of the law and say, this law is racist. That's hard to do now. Most laws aren't written to be racist. The problem is the application of them. And the inherent bias is much more difficult to deal with than explicit bias. So implicit is harder than explicit. And that's the challenge of this next generation is to become more and more aware of that and figure out ways to remedy it. I talk in the book about, you know, some people have suggested that you don't know the race of a defendant. You don't get to see the defendant. You don't know the race of a victim. You don't get to introduce evidence about the victim. But actually what I've seen in my career is an increase in bringing in evidence about victims. And sometimes I get accused of being anti-victim, but I don't think... You know, as a criminal defense attorney, on more than one occasion, I had to cross-examine the mother of a victim in a death penalty case. And to me, we should treat all human life the same. So we shouldn't be given the death penalty because a lot of people come into court and say, this guy was a wonderful guy. Because then when a homeless person gets murdered, nobody shows up. And now we're going to treat that crime differently. Yet... A lot of people believe like victims should play more and more a role in the criminal justice system, but that's the end result of it is now we're not going to treat the crime the same regardless of who the human being is who's killed. So I think there's a real moral question to that. I've seen it firsthand. I've had to deal with it firsthand. And it's, it's a horrible part of our system. Yeah, it's especially tricky because there's no like solid way to deal with that. I, I mean, that is the real question. Are there procedures that we can apply that diminishes this bias, but maybe the best answer is just recognizing that we have these bias and like and and trying to overcome it. That's about it. I mean, I think when we're aware of our biases, we can, you know, we can try to manage them to a certain extent. But empathy is a very, very powerful thing. I mean, a lot of people have said, by the way, an interesting analogy to this is that women gained more from the civil rights movement than people of color. And the theory is women gained more because white males already loved women. It was just making the transfer 
to treating them better. Yeah. So, right? So it's like, they, they, you know, they, they were like their mothers and their sisters and their daughters. And so mm-hmm. there was much more empathy towards the plight of women as opposed to empathy that was more difficult to drum up to people that you couldn't connect with at, at the same level. And uh, there's just there's just a, a real reality that human beings cannot survive if every moment of the day we were truly empathetic about every bad thing happening in the world. <laughs> it would be it would be unbearable for all of us. It would be exhausting. Exactly. <laughs> so we focus on the on our family, on our community, on the things that we're super connected to, and that's what moves us. To whatever it is, love, anger, hate, all our emotions are connected up with that because we can't connect our emotions to everything on the planet. That's why one of my first questions was, how do you sleep at night? And that's why my answer was, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> so uh, I, I have a kind of a silly question. It's obviously this is not uh, actual legal advice, but do you have a personal opinion on Michael Peterson, the staircase guy? No, I do not. I have not. You know what? I study like no other cases but my own. I watch no crime anything. I've never seen CSI. Gosh, why not? <laughs> I When I go home, I watch HGTV. I like to watch a couple trying to pick out a countertop and, you know, worrying about whether it's going to fit in the new house. That's the kind of mindless stuff that, that helps me to get some you know sleep what? at night. You That's what you deserve. That's, that's exactly where you should be. <laughs> So just to kind of close this out, what are some realistic, measurable goals that you have for the California Innocence Project? When I started the project 24 years ago, I had three missions. Get innocent people out of prison, train law students to be better lawyers at the same time by having them work on cases, and do legal reforms to improve the system. And that's what we've been doing for 24 years. As I said earlier, we've freed 40 innocent people. I've trained hundreds of law students in my clinic because they go out and investigate cases, work on the cases, learn how to be good lawyers. And we've had about a dozen laws in California that we've been a part of enacting to improve the justice system. So, um, you know, keeping on doing that is what the future should be. There's still a lot more innocent people in prison. There's a lot more law students to train, and there's a lot more improvements we can make. Oh, that's incredible. Well, it sounds like you're doing amazing work. One more time, your book is called, terrifyingly, You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. <laughs> yeah. So, and I actually put together a website around the book that has a lot of interesting videos and extra information called youmightgotoprison.com. <laughs> so check that out. I think your publisher did made the right move by having you title the book what, what you did, because that is very, it's scary and it's attention grabbing. I mean, it's so scary, by the way. I'll leave you with this thought. I literally have a plan for my first day in prison if it ever happens to me because I know it can happen to anybody. And it's, uh, I'm going to go out on the yard. I'm going to get together all the gang leaders. And I'm going to say, I'm going to be your lawyer and your lawyer and your lawyer and your lawyer. Now, keep all these other dudes away from me. I'll be in the law library every day working to get you out of here. (laughs) So it's not start a fight with the biggest guy in prison. No, I, I'm not going to take that strategy. That, that might be for other people. I'm a, I'm a 57-year-old lawyer. <laughs> I am, I'm glad you have a plan. Thank you. 
Well, Justin Brooks, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a really fascinating conversation. I am ordering your book and thank you for for chatting with us. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. So yeah, loved talking to Professor Brooks and thank you, Professor Brooks, for doing all of your incredible work. I can't imagine how you sleep at night. (laughs) Seriously. Thank you. Amazing. Well, Let's hear a quick word from our sponsors, and then I'm actually going to cover a case that our guest, Justin Brooks, was instrumental in. I'm excited to hear your case. Let's do it. Knowledge is power, people. And when you know more, you can make better decisions for your body, for your health, for your future. And there aren't many decisions bigger than, I don't know, having a cab, mm-hmm. but... You know, for many people, their fertility is a big old question mark. I don't know what's going on down there. I didn't either. And that is why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within six business days. Honestly, it could not be any easier and also the finger prick is totally fine and not anything to be scared of Mm -mm. and it saves you a doctor's visit it's the best plus you'll get insight into your hormone levels like your ovarian reserve aka if you have more or fewer eggs than average depending on your age Mm. and other important factors that can impact your fertility. The results go deep into what every hormone means, and you can also download the results to review with your doctor for next steps, which I love. So you can actually take your time to kind of process all of that information. Right. And traditional hormone testing at a fertility clinic can cost over $600. Nope. Yeah. But Modern Fertility tests the same general set of hormones for only $179. I mean... The savings. A lot of savings. And if you go to modernfertility.com slash gals, you can get $20 off your test. Plus, you can get reimbursed for the test through your FSA or HSA. So if you want kids today or just maybe one day in the future, or you just want, you know, clinically sound info about... Your body. Your body, yeah. Modern Fertility can help you make the right decision for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash gals. That means your test will cost just $159, which is a fraction of what it would cost at a fertility clinic. Get 20 bucks off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash gals. One more time, modernfertility.com slash gals and treat your knowledge. Treat it. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about Marilyn Malero. And like I said, Justin Brooks was instrumental in clearing her name and getting her released from prison after being on death row for decades. It's, uh, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's incredible. Whoa. We're going in the way back machine. Mm-hmm. May 12th, 1992, Chicago, just after midnight. The late 1900s. The late 19... Oh, my God. Yep. <laughs> Two members of the Latin Kings gang were shot and killed in a public bathroom in Humboldt Park, mm. which right now has some stunningly... Beautifully renovated condos. Let me know if Humboldt Park is is a good area. 
is higher, folks. Yeah, let me know. So the victims were 21-year-old Hector Reyes and 22-year-old Jimmy Cruz. Both were shot in the head at point-blank range in the in the back of the head. My God, like execution style? Yes. Jesus. In a bathroom. In a public bathroom. Oh, God. A park public Mm -hmm. bathroom. Mm -hmm. So the day after the double murder, a woman named Yvette Rodriguez, who was in jail facing a federal drug charge, and that charge would have been a parole violation for her, started talking to detectives Ernest Halverson and Ronaldo Guevara. Mm Mm-hmm. There are going to be a lot of names in this case, and I'm going to do my best to help you keep track of them. Okay. So Yvette is in jail. She's talking to detectives Halverson and Guevara. Where is the chart? Yeah. It's it's in my brain, sadly. (laughs) Do you have a map? (laughs) I wish. Actually, I think Screenshot I do. your brain. Uh, there's definitely a map of God Humboldt Park it. in Chicago. Oh, my God. You are so perfectly oh predictable. There it is. There's the there goddamn map. Uh, I like to situate. There's the fucking map. Here it is. Fucking map. <laughs> I think I, at this point, would be more concerned if you didn't upload a map. Then it wouldn't be me. Yeah. You're having a stroke. Body snatched. Okay, so Yvette is in jail. She's facing these charges. She starts to talk to detectives. Yvette claims that a teenage girl named Jackie had bragged to her about having shot two Latin kings. Mm -hmm. It's unclear how Yvette, who was in jail when this crime took place, was in contact with this Jackie girl who was not in jail and supposedly committed this crime. We don't have an answer for that. Okay. Okay. So again, this is all hearsay that Yvette supposedly heard from Jackie. Mm Mm-hmm. She says that Jackie was with two other women, Mary or Mari and Tootie, when it happened. Tootie. Tootie, I know. Oh, God. Tootie. Like the fruity. Oh. (laughs) The three women went to the park and started talking to Reyes and Cruz. Jackie then followed Reyes into the bathroom, shooting him in the back of the head. Oh, God. Why, you ask? Because of a gang rivalry, and we will get to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Mari or Mary was walking with Cruz, the other guy, in the park. And so Jackie then comes out of the bathroom and walks up behind these two and shoots Cruz in the head. Mm. So the girls are with a different uh, rival gang? Yes. Presumably? Okay. The Presumably, the three girls are with a rival gang and the two guys are with the, the Latin kings. And we're, okay. we'll get to it in, just in a moment. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Tootie was reportedly waiting in the car while all of this went down. Mm-hmm. So from Yvette's, albeit hearsay, jailhouse testimony, detectives sense that they have a shortcut to solving this thing. And they're like, okay, we know what happened. Right. Because this lady says so. Yeah. We're just going to take it and close it because we yeah. don't want to do any other work. Clarence, Bye. baby. Yep. So investigators determined that the Jackie was 15-year-old Jacqueline Montanez. 15. 15. Oh, poor thing. Tootie was 16-year-old Madeline Mendoza. And Mari or Mary was 21-year-old Marilyn Molero. And that's who we're going to focus on. Got it. Marilyn Molero. Mm, so it probably is Mary. Probably Mary. Marilyn. Yeah. So according to the police, all three were female members of a gang called the Maniac Latin Disciples. Whoa. Uh, okay. 
which had a big rivalry with, you guessed it, the Latin Kings. Mm Mm-hmm. And just one week before the murders, a member of the Maniac Latin Disciples, a man named Ishmael Torres, was killed by the Latin Kings. So now the Animaniacs are out for revenge. Animaniacs? Oh, my God. (laughs) Did you watch that show when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. Of course. Did not understand what was happening ever? It's basically the origins of surrealist comedy, and I love it. Yeah, it was supposed to be educational, but it just was not. There was was a water tower, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Warner Brothers. Yeah. Okay, so buckle up, because the names are about to get even more confusing. Okay. A woman named Jackie Serrano, different Jackie. Like the pepper. Mm. Yes, like a Serrano pepper, and also like the name of my friend. Claimed that she and her aunt Marilyn, different Marilyn, Jesus Christ, had witnessed the murders from her apartment window. Okay. So witness Jackie says that she looked out the window of her bathroom and saw three women in the park with two men. Then she saw one of the shorter women stand behind one of the men and heard a gunshot. Okay. So she basically is saying that she witnessed the cruise shooting, which would have sure. taken place right after the bathroom shooting. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Yvette, jailhouse snitch lady, mm-hmm. adds to her story to police saying that previously accused Jackie and accused Marilyn mm-hmm. had asked her and her friend, a woman named Rhonda Riley, to come with them to, quote, go kill some Latin kings. Mm. So Rhonda backs us up and she picks Jackie and Marilyn out in a lineup, which was kind of like the final nail in the coffin. Mm -hmm. Also, in return for her statement, Yvette's drug charges were conveniently dismissed. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Believe everything she says. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then thereby she avoided a federal parole violation. Mm. Oh, my God. They're kind of big charges to get dismissed. Yeah. So all of this is working out very neatly for the cops. Case closed. Right. They charge all three women, so Jackie Montanez, Marilyn Malero, and even little Madeline Tootie Mendoza with first-degree murder. The 16-year-old? The 15 and 16? Both Mm -hmm. of them and Marilyn, who is older. Marilyn's 21. For God's sakes. So the next day, detectives Guevara and Halverson, remember these two asshats, Mm -hmm. arrest Marilyn and Jackie at their their gang members' funeral, Ishmael Mm -hmm. Torres' funeral. The detectives immediately accuse them of luring the Latin Kings guys, Cruz and Reyes, to the park and killing them as retaliation for Torres' murder. Okay. Mm -hmm. According to Marilyn, they were never read their Miranda rights. Mm Mm-hmm. And when the girls refused to speak to the cops, the detectives took them while they were in their custody to Humboldt Park, the scene of the crime. God. And also like a known hangout spot for their rival gang, the Latin Mm -hmm. Kings. Oh, my God. And then the detectives walked the girls up to a group of known Latin King gang members who were in the park And said, quote, these are the two who killed your homeboys. What? Oh, my God. You may as well just sentence them to death Mm -hmm. at that point. Jesus. And they're fucking children. Mm -hmm. Jackie is 15. I can't. Uh, mm Mm-hmm. 
So obviously this made things very fucking dangerous for Marilyn and Jackie. And I don't really know where Tootie is right now. She's a little hard to track down. Oh, Tootie. <laughs> so, oh. Tootie. Tu- tuna. Remember Tuna? Oh, I rem- I'll oh. never forget. Hashtag never forget. <laughs> oh, that was a great app. Okay. Mm-hmm. So after this little life-threatening jaunt in the park, the detectives brought Jackie Montañez and Marilyn Malero back to the station and interrogated them for nine hours. Jesus. According to Marilyn, they still weren't Mirandized, and she was denied sleep as well as access to legal counsel throughout her interrogation. Mm-hmm. The detectives lied, telling her at one point that Jackie had just confessed in the other room mm-hmm. and implicated her in both murders. So now she thinks that she's getting pinned for for everything. Which Classic. is like, a, yeah, it's a, that's a common tactic. Yes, I, I think, think it's it illegal. To, it, I don't it, think it is. I don't think it's illegal. To I don't look, think it's illegal either. Yeah. Well, a lot of what they're doing is illegal. I do think that I do think that is illegal. But like what's stopping them with all the other bullshit? I think it is. I think we've talked about in the in our Mm. interrogations episode about how like lying to the perp is not actually illegal. Yeah, I don't think that is illegal to say like we've got so and so and they just confessed and said that you did it. We already know what you did. Blah, blah, blah. Like they can. We have evidence like they've said shit like that before a million times. So they basically told Marilyn that she had the choice between confessing to one of the murders or getting the blame for both because yep. Jackie was talking. So what the fuck else is she going to do? She's a baby. Mm-hmm. She's, 21. she's a terrified baby. Well, yeah. Okay. She's still a terrified no, baby. No, I know. I know. Yeah. I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. And then they also basically said, like, impl- imply that she would automatically get the death penalty if, you know, she was uh, blamed for both. Uh-huh, because that's how that works. So they kind of tried to imply that, like, she could avoid the death penalty if she admitted to one mm-hmm. Some Some states have outlawed police lying to minors. Mm-hmm. Okay. But not all states, and it is legal in all 50 states. For adults, for sure. So I think part of why they focused on Marilyn is because she was the only one over the age of 18. Mm-hmm. They could also get her in jail for way longer. Exactly. Mm, that's not so not that up. Jackie and Tootie got off lightly and we're about to get to it, but no, it does feel like they zeroed in on Marilyn because she was older. Mm-hmm. The detectives also made threats, including having her children who were toddlers at the time taken away from her. Oh, my God. And so believing that Jackie had implicated her in both murders and that she would never see her kids again slash would definitely get the death penalty if she didn't quote-unquote, confess to one of the killings, Marilyn Malero finally agreed to sign a prepared statement that was written by the cops. This, quote-unquote, confession stated that she was the shooter for Jimmy Cruz and that she was part of the conspiracy for the Reyes shooting. Mm -hmm. Jackie Montanez, who was 15, was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Mm Mm-hmm. On September 22nd, 1993, Madeline Tutti Mendoza pled guilty to murder and was sentenced to 35 years in prison. She was 16 at the time of the crime. The 15-year-old got life? The 15-year-old got life without parole, and the 16-year-old got 35 years. Jesus. And even according to these supposed witnesses and statements and confessions, Tutti was waiting in the car. Oh, my God. But she got 35 years. 
But the harshest sentence was actually still reserved for Marilyn, despite her signed, quote unquote, confession. The prosecutor was still seeking the death penalty in her case. Mm -hmm. Marilyn's family hired an attorney named Jeremiah Lynch. 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 I'm sure they were trying to make sure that she had better representation. Like, I'm sure they... Like, it's not, you know, she could have been given a random public defender. She might have been better off with a random public defender. But they were trying, so they hired this attorney. He fucking sucked. Oh, dear. Lynch had never handled a death penalty case before, nor would he ever again. And we will get to it. (laughs) He basically didn't bother to investigate at all. Mm Mm-hmm. And he only met with Malero, his fucking client, three times. What? Oh, my God. How the fuck? It's He's a death busy. penalty case. Oh, Jesus. I That's so egregious. And he is a hired attorney. He wasn't just a public defender. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, that's sick. Against the advice of pretty much all other defense attorneys, five days after Tootie's guilty plea, Lynch convinced his client, Marilyn, to plead guilty to first-degree murder. Like, without a plea deal, just plead guilty in a death penalty case. What on earth? Not to avoid the death penalty. Like, you don't get the deal. I... What the fuck? What would be the point? What? I don't... Just in the hopes that the jury doesn't pass the death sentence, just like out of the kindness of their hearts. Just go limp. Let it happen. Yeah. That's so Uh, insane. She's 21. Mm -hmm. And if you couldn't already tell how checked out this man was, Lynch not only withdrew then completely from the case after Marilyn agreed to this, he also quit practicing law altogether and joined the fucking priesthood. The circus. The priesthood? Ew. Yeah. Oh. He just was like, "Uh, maybe the law isn't for me. For me. Bye. Oh, my God. That's, Mm -hmm. that was a choice. You're letting someone die, like, actively. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. So because she pled guilty, there's no trial. Yeah. There's still a sentencing hearing, though, with witnesses testifying before the sentencing jury. Sure. And so they're they're basically they're just to rule on whether or not she gets sentenced to the the death penalty or life in prison or, you know, possibility of parole or whatever. I could. No, I can't. So there are still like witnesses for the prosecution and the defense. But like the best she can really hope for is life in prison. Uh Mm-hmm. At the sentencing hearing, another jailhouse informant, a woman named Joan Roberts, testified for the prosecution. She said that she was in the Cook County Jail with all three of the women and that they'd confirmed that both Marilyn and Jackie had shot their victims in the back of the head. So she said, like, yeah, the you know, I overheard them and they, this, they yeah, said. Yeah, what did they offer her to say that? Mm-hmm. Jailhouse informants are not reliable. Mm-hmm. Joan also claimed that Marilyn was fucking furious at Jackie for having talked to the police and was trying to take her out in prison or, like, hire a hit on Jackie. Cool. But in exchange for this testimony, Joan Roberts was released from jail and placed on electronic monitoring. 
And somehow her armed robbery charges were reduced to misdemeanors Mm -hmm. and she was given probation. Who makes these decisions? I don't know. It's just like the DA. uh, I don't know. Like just the administrative nebula. It's Mm -hmm. just so impossible to get a, a solid information in a system that is so fucked and so corrupt and also like of course any any inmate that's living in those kinds of conditions would at least consider the idea of turning informant at the chance of a better situation yeah wouldn't you i would i absolutely would absolutely i would yeah it's just like you can't make you can't make the pot too sweet you know Mm -hmm. God, I just like I feel so sick over it. I hate it. Another detective, Detective Anthony Riccio, accused Marilyn of flashing gang signs after confessing to the murder. Like they were just trying to make her seem like this, like horrible, hardcore gang, you know, cold blooded. Right. And prosecutors managed to suppress the part of her quote-unquote confession where she mentioned how the detectives had threatened her so they were like oh don't say that part Uh (laughs) uh-huh so they literally like line edited mic cut out her confession yeah where i'm sure she was like well you know they said if i like and i don't want the i don't want to die yeah i want to be able to see my kids again someday oh god it's So so tragic at every point But there were also character witnesses for Marilyn's side at the hearing. Joseph Whittington was a teacher in the jail education program who testified that Malero was a shy and quiet person who liked to write poetry. And Gloria Brookins was a social worker and counselor who testified that Malero helped her often with other women in the program and that she didn't engage in gang-related behavior. Right. But the jury had already made their decision. They recommended the death penalty. And on November 12th, 1993, Judge John Mannion formally sentenced Marilyn Malero to death. Because uh, they, they made a decision that was handed to them, manipulated on a silver platter. Yeah. It's just so fucking sad. She was the first woman to be sentenced to death in Illinois. Wow. Why start now? Jesus. Mm-hmm. Justin Brooks was a law professor. Sure was. Thomas, Ever heard of him. Ever heard of him. At the Thomas M. Cooley Law School at Western Michigan University at the time, when he read about how Malera was sentenced to death as part of a plea bargain. That's completely ancient. God, I can't even so wrap my head crazy. around that. <laughs> he was shocked, quote, shocked that she could be sentenced to death without a trial, end quote. Yeah. By a priest. That should never be allowed to happen, mm-hmm. ever. Ugh. And then when Professor Brooks met with Malero in prison, she turned the tables even more and insisted that she was innocent. Like not even fucking do it. Yeah. Like not only is this like a procedural fucking nightmare, but also I didn't do it. It was a coerced confession to begin with. Mm -hmm. So Marilyn must have made a really big impression on Brooks because he soon recruited four students from his criminal law class to help investigate her case, including L. Woods. Oh, basically, that's what I'm picturing. If only. So with Brooks and Elle Woods' help, <laughs> Malero filed to withdraw her plea and vacate her death sentence. Mm-hmm. This was denied, but then they appealed. And in May 1997, the Illinois Supreme Court vacated the death sentence. Mm-hmm. 
So and she'd already been in prison for like, what, three or four years at that point? Yeah. Yeah, four years. On death row, right? On death row. Yeah. For ni- 93. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, So the court held that the cross-examination of Malero was improper. And this was cross-examination at the sentencing hearing, which was basically like this mini trial, basically. And it was Mm -hmm. the only time she ever even like saw a courtroom. Yeah. So during this cross-examination, the prosecution had used the fact that she tried to take back her coerced confession as, quote, proof that she didn't show any remorse. Oh, come on. Get they, you. So they tried Get to be bent. like, and she Get tried bent. to take back her confession. So she's just remorseless. Blah, blah, yeah. blah. Sentence her to death. Give it okay. a rest. Yeah. 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 Jesus. The no remorse thing, like, Ugh. really bothers me. Yeah. It. It's like, what are you supposed to do if... You are innocent. Like, right. Mm-hmm. If advocating for yourself just if you translates do, if you to don't. you have no remorse. Yeah. No remorse is like those guys who like kill children and then like talk back to the family members Fucking, in the courtroom. Like Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay. No remorse. That that applies. But not think, to this fucking woman. I don't think proclaiming your own innocence should ever be seen as showing no remorse. I think the only thing that could constitute showing no remorse is if you're like, yeah, I did it and I do it again. Yeah. And I'll kill this person too. Nothing to feel remorse over if you are innocent. Right. Right. Of course I'm not showing remorse. I didn't fucking do it. Right. Exactly. But that's not how our system works. So based on this ruling, Brooks was able to take Malero's case in front of a new sentencing jury, mm-hmm. and they declined to impose the death sentence. But she is still considered guilty. She's just now sentenced to life without parole. But at least taken off of death row. At least taken off of death row. Although later Step in one. interviews, she was like, like, like obviously this was it, like it's good that I was taking off taken off of death row, but. My time in prison at that point got a lot harder because. Oh, sure. You're back with everybody. You're back in gen pop. Yeah. And you're you at know, high risk. Yeah. Of violence. You're just trying to survive. And you in have there. the rest of your life to go. Yep. Yeah. And she was like, that's when people were like, you know, there people were fighting and uh-huh. it was really hectic. Whereas when she was on death row, there are like fewer people to worry about and it's like physically actually a lot safer. Right. Right. Yeah. Shit. But Justin Brooks didn't stop there. He go, Justin, moved. Go. go, Justin, go. He moved to Southern California around this time. And in 1999, he founded the California Innocence Project. Ever heard of it. So this was like pre his yeah. work with the Innocence Official. Project. But it was like what it was like the case that like got him into mm-hmm. innocence cases, I mm-hmm. guess. That's crazy. He then continued to work on Malero's case for the next 20 years. <gasps> wow. Filing motions and appeals in state court, then federal. And then the case was eventually denied review by the U.S. Supreme Court. But that it didn't matter yeah. because over time, evidence against Malero began to fall apart. Oh, we've got advanced DNA testing technology, baby. That did not play a role in this case. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. As Oops. she has previously stated. <laughs> I forgot that you already said that. But other things did. And we will get to that. <laughs> okay. 
So investigators actually like started to investigate the witness statements. Uh, wait, what? And see if they could be corroborated by, you know, facts Anyone? and evidence. Uh -huh. What a unique method. So groundbreaking. <laughs> so investigators went All to modern. the <laughs> went to the apartments where the witnesses, Jackie and Marilyn, mm -hmm. the Serrano Peppers, mm -hmm. claimed that they had seen the shooting from that apartment. And they determined that the bathroom in the park and the area around it were not at all visible from these apartments. Oh my god. 20 fucking like 5 years later. Mm -hmm. 10 seconds of detective work. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. I can't. Couldn't, I can't. Couldn't see from there. Or the Jesus. cops just couldn't be bothered to go, I don't know, check. Mhm. Mm well, why uh. would they? Because this was testimony that they wanted. Right. They concocted this. They found someone. Yeah. Yeah. Then in 2017, Jackie Montañez admitted in an affidavit, and she had also verbally said this many times, but it took like a fucking affidavit, that she was alone and had planned the shooting. Mm -hmm. She admitted shooting both men by herself and said that Marilyn was not aware of her plan ahead of time. Wow. So Jackie did do it. Jackie yeah. did do it. And I do think that all three women were involved in the Animaniacs, mm -hmm. but I don't know mm -hmm. that for sure. Jackie was furious that her co-gang member, Ishmael Torres, was gunned down by the Latin Kings. Mm -hmm. Ishmael Torres was deaf, mm -hmm. and so she just felt like it was like a particularly egregious move by this rival gang to like kill a, a deaf guy. Right. And so she promised Taurus's mother that she would get revenge for him. Mm. She said that she shot Reyes in the park bathroom. And then when she was coming out, she was afraid that Cruz was going to hurt Tootie because like mm -hmm. he had obviously heard the gunshot. Mm -hmm. And so she shot him as well. Part of what spurred Jackie's confession 24 years after the fact was that she was eligible for release in 2023. Oh, oh, my God. But Marilyn wasn't. Yeah. So even though, okay, so she confessed. That's and a double, put away it's for a her it's a double jeopardy situation. Mm -hmm. She didn't think it was fair for her to possibly be released while Marilyn, serving a life sentence, would die in prison despite having not killed anyone. Yeah. Well, she's right about that. It's not fucking fair. And then the other dominoes began to fall. Joan Roberts said that her testimony, and this was the testimony that she claimed that Marilyn had put a hit out on Jackie mm -hmm. while in jail and was like bragging about the killing and stuff. Joan was like, no, that was totally false. Mm -hmm. Detective Halverson. Had I just wanted out. Not only did she want out, but Detective Halverson threatened to send gang members after her family if she didn't testify for oh him. Oh, my God. Oh the cops God. are the biggest gang in this entire story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rhonda Riley also rescinded her testimony. And we now know that Detectives Guevara and Halverson were notorious for fabricating evidence, mm -hmm. obtaining false witness statements, and coercing false confessions. I don't even want to know how many fucking cases they have fucked. Well, too fucking bad because you're about to. Oh, oh God no. Damn it. 
Yes, they'd put Marilyn Malero on death row, but she was far from their only victim. 31 wrongful convictions tied to Detective Guevara have been overturned since 2016. And those are just the ones that have been successfully overturned. There Mm -hmm. could be way more. Mm-hmm. Including another death row exoneree, Gabrielle Solace. Oh Jesus. my God! The Good second God. woman sentenced to death in Illinois. Uh, or maybe it's sorry. I said Gabrielle. It's probably Gabrielle. Gabriel. Oh, okay. Sorry, I get that name confused. Gabriel mm. Solace. Jesus. Guevara has been accused of framing defendants for murder in more than fifty cases. Holy shit! Both Guevara and Halverson have been accused of beating, threatening, and coercing suspects to obtain false confessions, as well as a history of denying legal counsel to suspects in custody, which they did to Marilyn and Jackie. Uh They were part of a group called the Burge Squad. Gross. Which operated under the Chicago police commander John Burge. And this group systematically tortured or coerced innocent suspects into confessing to murders that they did not commit. Jesus. Wow. Wow. Cook County has had 15 death row exonerations that were directly related to endemic police corruption. Fucking Christ. I just watched a documentary about something similar in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Like a bunch of cops were... They acted together to steal drugs from, Mm -hmm. like, drug dealers and then sell it Mm -hmm. and then, like, put other people in jail. Like, there were so many completely innocent people who went Mm -hmm. to jail while these cops got super-duper rich off of stealing and selling drugs. Mm -hmm. You sure you were watching a documentary or were you watching The Place Beyond the Pines with Ryan Gosling? (gasps) I love that movie. What's her name? Something Mendez, super hot. Yes. Eva Mendez? Eva, Eva Mendez, yes, 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 yes. Are they married? Something. Isn't that where they met? Yeah, I, I think, think so. so. Yeah. Ooh, great film. Very good. So, yeah, we just, we don't know how many more innocent people are in jail because of them, because of yeah. these two detectives or because of the whole fucking squad, mm-hmm. the, the whole county, squad. everybody. Squad. So... Yeah. In 2019, the California Innocence Project, in collaboration with the Exoneration Project and the Illinois Innocence Project, filed a new clemency petition on Marilyn's behalf. So I think the only reason California was involved was because Justin Brooks had gone out there, had gone out there because really this is an Illinois case. Mm-hmm. I think they just share they can share resources. And it's, stuff yeah, like the that network too. definitely does. Yeah. So on April 6th, 2020, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker granted Marilyn Malero clemency. Mm-hmm. She was released from prison two days later. God, wow, I bet good. that felt so good. Mar- er, Marilyn had spent a total of 28 years in prison, My five God. of those on death row Ugh. before she was released. Ugh. Later at a press conference, she said, quote, I had to be a strong individual because I had two toddlers when I was incarcerated. I had to fight for them. I had to be strong for them. Mm -hmm. Can't imagine just being like ripped from your children. Uh, No. And then Mm -hmm. they're like 30 when you get out. They're full ass adults. You Mm -hmm. miss everything. They probably have their own kids. And they have all kinds of feelings. I mean, she said that she's. She's working on, like, rebuilding those relationships. But, Mm -hmm. you know, they didn't necessarily know that she was innocent. 
mm-hmm. that whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were just wh- whatever the people who were raising them were, was telling them is right. probably what their reality was at that time. Right. And yeah. like the world at large. Exactly. So she was finally reunited with her family in her 50s. She was 21 when she was convicted. Oh, my God, that breaks my fucking heart. What a life wasted. Yep. She went back to school to become a barber, and she also applied for the Illinois Prison Project to become an ambassador for change in the prison system. Mm -hmm. And she is an advocate for women in prison still to this day. Mm Mm-hmm. Quote, there's other women out there that are incarcerated, that are innocent, that I will keep fighting for, just like our other Guevara victims that are in there. Dang. Yeah. That's so fucking sad. I'm so glad she got out. Really cool that she's like giving back too. now that she's out. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Not that she fucking owes anybody shit. She wanted to go on an island and just drink fucking martinis the rest of her life. Couldn't blame her for that. But it takes a very special kind of person to be mistreated by the justice system your entire life, essentially, and then willingly go back in to help others. It's really incredible. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ugh, wow. There's a photo of this Detective Guevara on the drive, too, that'll be on the blog. God. Ew. I don't even want to look at it. Yeah. I mean, I will, but ew. Ew. Yuck. And, like, we've said it before, but, like, you're not only ruining these innocent people's lives and their families' lives or whatever, but you're also, like, not getting justice for the victims. Anyone. But it's never been about justice. It's just been about their own clearance rates. Yeah. They don't give a shit about actual justice. That's not why they're there. Mm-hmm. You know? She's they're so there cute-looking. to swing their dicks and yeah. fucking join the Bulge Club or whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> Look at this picture of her with her big hair and her blue eyeshadow. So fucking She's cute. She's so cute. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. Mm-hmm. Ugh, well done. Yeah, well, well done to Justin Brooks, man, and to Marilyn. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, fuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. Well, should we take a quick break and then hear another really sad story? Yeah. yeah. Great. Let's do it. This case is pretty famous. I actually think that I've like mentioned it before, but we I haven't covered the whole case, so this was my opportunity. Okay. It also just has every glaring issue with the justice system. You got your racism, you got your coerced confessions, you got your shit police work, you got your bullshit forensics, you got your jailhouse informants, you know the drill. This Amazing. case is everything. Yeah. Now, runs the gamut. So on the evening of May 18th, 1978, 28-year-old Lawrence Lionberg was working a slow summer night shift at a Chicago suburb gas station in Homewood, Illinois. His fiance, 23-year-old Carol Schmall, decided to go hang out at the gas station to keep her fiance company. It was very late when a car with four men pulled into the station and the four men got out. They entered the shop and abducted Lawrence and Carol at gunpoint drove them to an abandoned home in an underserved Chicago community. And while there, Lawrence and Carol were beaten. Carol was raped, and both of them were shot to death and left okay. in this abandoned house. That is a horrific and senseless crime. Correct. Okay. Their bodies were found the following morning by neighborhood children who, like, play in the house. Oh, dear God. Okay. Yeah. Really fucking horrific right off the bat. The violent murder of a young white couple was headline gold and every paper was running the story. Rewards for information were being offered and calls started rolling into the police station. 
Four men were arrested based on witness eyewitness claims that they were seen near the gas station in the Fort Heights area of Chicago within the timeline of events on that night in question. Mm-hmm. So you said that racism plays a role. Were the victims the men, white? The victims were white and the men implicated were all young black men. Okay. Mm-hmm. Who had just been seen near in, the gas station. Well, allegedly seen near allegedly the gas station. Allegedly seen near the gas station. Mm, that's Dennis for Williams. Me. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Dennis Williams, Kenneth Adams, Vernil Jimerson, and Willie Range, four young black men who seemed to the police like the perfect suspects to commit a crime in a majority white suburb, were arrested. Yeah, what are they doing here? Mm-hmm. Mm. A young black girl named Paula Gray was also picked up with these four men for being involved in this crime. She was only 17. She was mentally disabled and was questioned by police without any family or an advocate present. They held her in a nearby motel, Mm-mm. questioning her ad nauseum for two straight days, so probably depriving her of sleep. Mm-hmm. A fucking Bef- motel? That is yep. sick. Yep. And terrifying. Horrific. Before she, quote unquote, confessed to being involved in this crime and confirmed that Dennis, Kenneth, Vernil, and Willie were the main perpetrators. Yeah, she was terrified. She needed to get out of there. She didn't know what the fuck she was saying. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Then she was taken before a grand jury where she testified that she had been present and saw the men repeatedly rape Miss Small and then shoot both victims to death. From Northwestern Law, quote, Gray soon recanted her confession, which contained only two purported facts that were not known to police. And both of those assertions ultimately were shown to have been false. Oh, my mm. God. And she's a minor. And she's she's disabled yeah like Mm -hmm. she is intellectually disabled she does not she's a minor but she she was operating like i think she was reading at like a third grade level yeah like she just was not she didn't have the capacity to engage like this to engage like this especially under duress i mean it's just fucking in a motel for two days she was essentially representation that's illegal Yeah, and not they only don't give are a fuck. They... She's a young, disabled black girl. Yeah, God. and not only are they coercing her and terrorizing her, but they're also now planting really horrific, like false memories false into memory. her mind. Yeah, yeah, they're psychologically abusing her in every possible way. Yeah, didn't you see this guy do X, Y, and Z to this woman? Yeah. Yep. God. Yep. And then when she recanted. She was charged with the rape and murders and perjury. Cool. What? She was ch- yep. That's that's like the f- other version of showing no remorse. No remorse. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're going to take it back? Well, then, then now perjury. you're and always lying. You were there and you lied, so you get a perjury charge. So, sorry. When you confessed, we were going to leave you be, but now we're, you know, you were there, so you're an accessory and you lied. So, perjury. Bye. Great. She was tried simultaneously with Adams, Range, and Williams in the same courtroom before the same judge, but by a separate jury. The charges against Jimerson could not be pursued at that time because without Gray's testimony that she had recanted, there was no evidence at all against him. Mm -hmm. The man who had called in to report these folks to police was a guy named Charles McCraney. I'm really not sure what his race is. He sounds like a crank. He does. He's Charles McCranky. <laughs> and that's not super relevant 
in in the rest of the context of this story, but like it could very easily have been a crotchety old white guy calling mm-hmm. in four young black men and mm-hmm. you know and saying, "Oh, I saw these guys near the gas sniffing station. around the gas station." Mm-hmm. That now I want to be very clear. I am speculating mm-hmm. because I truly do not know, mm-hmm. but I could I could see that being the case. Mm-hmm. So this witness had not placed Jimerson at the scene. So without mm-hmm. you know her. Paula Gray saying, oh, yeah, he was there. There's no one putting him there. So he's now not part of this. Every time you say Paula Gray, I think about Polly Gray from Peaky Blinders. But continue. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I didn't know where you were going with that. So shocking. (laughs) Polly Gray. I think of Paula Dean. Paula Dean. Booter and all, y'all. So the prosecution presented some very loose forensic evidence, bringing forth an expert forensic witness named Michael Podlecki, who testified that at least one of the rapists was type A secretor blood, which is shared by 25% of the population, and alleged that Williams and Adams had type A secretor blood. Though an independent forensic witness retest or forensic panel retested this evidence years later in 1987 and concluded that Williams and Adams actually had non-secretor blood. Oh, great. They didn't even have the right type of blood. They had the right type. They were type A, but they didn't have the other incredibly important characteristic that would have matched their blood to this crime scene. Aren't the non-secretors pretty rare? I think so. Well, I don't know. The secretors, type A secretor is 25% of the population. I don't know how rare that is. I don't know how rare the non-secretors are. I think the About non-secretors are pretty rare. Well, they're mm-hmm. 20% of the population are non-secretors. So it's actually a coincidence that two of them were non-secretors. Well, there you go. Podlecki also claimed that hairs from the back of William's car were consistent with uh, Larry Lionberg and Miss Schmall. But these hairs either couldn't be properly DNA tested or... Mm-hmm. Or didn't contain the bulb where the DNA lives. Mm -hmm. They were just like shed that didn't have the bulb on it. Yeah. So this was simply a comparison test and comparison testimony, not actual DNA evidence. Which is absolutely useless for hair. Completely useless. Like you can can be like, well, this this one looks long and that one looks short. Yeah. Like that's not. It means nothing. Scientific. There was no other physical or forensic evidence to match the suspects to this crime. They were completely put away on testimony, an eyewitness, and two bullshit, quote-unquote, DNA samples. God, and they're just a handful of random guys out of the universe. That actually, if done properly, would have ruled them out. Completely out. Completely out. After the men were arrested, a fellow inmate named David Jackson came forward as a jailhouse informant and testified that he had overheard Williams and Range in jail discussing the murder and rape. Maybe they were, because that's why they were in prison. Well, Jackson later admitted that he fabricated this evidence because he was offered a deal by the authorities to be a jailhouse informant. Jesus fuck. Mm -hmm. The prosecution also eliminated all black jurors from the trial. Oh, All of the defendants were black and the murder victims were white and they were tried by an entirely white jury. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Did it take four minutes? The 70s? The early, late 70s, early 80s. I think oh. it took place on in 1978. Wow. But the trial went into the early 80s. Yeah. Not like that would have made much of a difference now, but still, it's like, 
It's they, fucking They would bad. have at least tried to hide it a little more now. I exactly. Guess. They probably wouldn't get away with having an all-white jury now. Right. right. I'd hope. Well, I Maybe don't I'm know. just clinging to I don't know why hope. the defense attorneys would continue to rule out black jurors. I just don't think they gave a shit anymore. There's only so much the defense can do. They, the defense can't unilaterally rule someone in. Right, right. And they only get so many, like, vetoes. They take turns picking. Right. So if they were considering race as they mm-hmm. should have been, which they probably weren't at the time. I think they just weren't. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was. Yeah. That's really sick. The prosecution also suppressed evidence from an eyewitness who was actually by the abandoned house where the murders took place that very night. A man named Marvin Simpson reported hearing several gunshots and seeing four men run from the house. So no Paula Gray. Mm-hmm. The men he saw were identified as Arthur Robinson, Juan Rodriguez, and Ira and Dennis Johnson, who are brothers. Mm-hmm. I saw this reported two different ways. One, that the police had this information and did not provide it to anyone for trial, so the prosecution may not have known it existed. Or the defense. And one, that the prosecution did know and didn't present it at trial. Either way, it's fucking egregious. It doesn't matter. It was suppressed evidence. Because they thought they were already farther with these other four guys. Yeah, they didn't want to muddy the waters. (sighs) So Northwestern law states, quote, as a result of police and prosecutorial misconduct, however, the report had not been turned over to the defense prior to trial as required by Brady versus Maryland. Yeah, exactly. You can't. It's It's a Brady violation, bitch. Oh, my God. Brady versus Maryland. It's Brady versus Maryland. Coming at you live. They made love. So the defense also called several friends and family members of who these four young men who were on trial who had been called in the media, the Ford Heights Four, to testify, all providing alibis for these men for the night in question. Oh, my God. Yep. Like, what else could they possibly have done to prove their innocence? They couldn't have. They couldn't. Uh, it was a David and Goliath situation, but they yeah. just had no way. They had no way. But Paula Gray's coach testimony had sealed the deal. She took the stand and said she was there and that she'd seen them do it. And even though she actually withdrew her testimony and was subsequently charged with murder and perjury, it was already too late. Like, we forget that the jury are still humans. Yeah. You can strike all that stuff it. from the record, but they've already heard it. Mm-hmm. Right. And now she's coming back and saying, oh, no, that's not actually right. Yeah. Delete but data. It, yeah. It just doesn't, right. it doesn't work that way. So Williams was sentenced to death while Adams was sentenced to 75 years. Range was sentenced to life. And Paula Gray was sentenced to 50 years, all in 1978. Again, Himerson or Jimerson could not be charged as Charles McCraney had not mentioned Jimerson in his testimony and Paula Gray had withdrawn her testimony. So they just had nothing. There's no forensic evidence against him. So they had mm-hmm. nothing to bring him to trial with. Mm-hmm. As for the Ford Heights Four, the Supreme Court of Illinois reversed the convictions of Williams and Range on appeal in 1982 because the defendant's lawyer was deemed incompetent and was the subject of a legal disciplinary hearing. Did he join so, the priesthood? It probably that also probably <laughs> helps answer your question about jury selection, the Brady violation. I mean, the Brady mm-hmm. violation is on the prosecution, but still like this fucking guy mm-hmm. didn't do his fucking job. He came under scrutiny and they looked into his past cases and he happened to be their lawyer. He was deemed incompetent and they had their convictions reversed. Okay. 
At that time, prosecutors offered Paula Gray a deal to get out of jail if she testified that she had seen Jimerson, Williams, and Range shoot the victims and rape Schmall, and she accepted. Yeah, because she's... Because she's been sitting in jail for a fucking decade. If you say this... Yeah, we'll let you go. Uh, Not quite a decade, but still. So in 1985, that eyewitness, Charles McCraney, had changed his evidence to include seeing Jimerson. Oh, this poor man! I don't think he's so poor a man. I think that they approached him and they were like, are you sure you didn't no, see I him? No, I meant Jimerson. Oh, Jimerson. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, I thought you were talking about Charles he, McCraney. He hasn't even, like, like, he wasn't charged no, in the he first wasn't even there. round. And now people are coming back and amending all their shit. I know, I know. And Jimerson was sentenced to death. Oh. What? Mm-hmm. So Charles McCraney, that witness, was likely approached by the prosecution with a tantalizing offer to, to submit fresh testimony because they were getting a new trial because those convictions were reversed. But McCraney wasn't in jail. What could they have been offering McCraney? I don't know if he's just some fucking lunch. Yeah. Poor dude living in a suburb of Chicago. God only knows. I think maybe it means that Jimerson was approached with an offer and he's turned it down. And so then they. No, no. I I know when I wrote this, it wasn't Jimerson who was given an offer. It was, it was Charles, the witness who was, had the, his wheel greased to change his submit new testimony that includes really seeing be helping us out. Mm-hmm. You'd be yeah. making the streets safer. Right. Wow. God. Well, and don't fucking tell me that cops don't give bribes to people like this. Oh, I mean, they probably offered him cash again, they speculation, could. but like, that's not out of the realm of possibility. just to get a specific guy off. So the yep. streets, that is so well, not even off the streets, because that implies that he's dangerous being on the streets. Just put away for no fucking reason. Yeah. Ten years after yeah. the fact. Ca- yeah. Capturing this man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in 1987, Williams was sentenced to death, ranged to life at retrial. Paula Gray was released from prison in 1987 as per the deal she struck with the prosecution. And I think Jimerson still like evaded this whole thing because it's like, bro, even if this guy says he saw me, you still do not have enough evidence to put me in prison. So like, fortunately, that poor bastard was brought back into the fold again. But once again, there was not sufficient, excuse me, evidence to go after him. So like the two that had the bad lawyer and got out, they're now they're just back they're in with back actually in. the same sentences. Yep, they're back in. Yeah. It wasn't until the late mid 90s when three female journalism students stumbled upon this case and dove into it further that the Marvin Simpson witness statement where he's like I saw these other guys, I was right by this house, yeah. I heard the gunshots. I know exactly who these four guys were. Yeah. Yep. They I think they are part of that like innocence network and they discovered that witness statement and brought it fully to light and wow. realized this was never in court. So believing this to be the break in the case that they needed, the students rallied together to have the DNA retested in a private lab through the innocence project. Mm-hmm. The results showed that Jimerson, Williams, Adams and range the, the, the Ford Heights yeah. four were all innocent Like, none of their DNA matched any of the forensic evidence that was collected at the scene. Not a bit of it. Yeah. Funny that. Yeah. Interesting. That's different. I wonder if it matches Ira and what's her nuts. What's his nuts? 
Well, funny you should say that, because this also paved the way to using the same DNA testing to confirm that Robinson, Rodriguez, Ira, and Dennis Johnson were indeed guilty. Hmm. Oh, my God. Upon questioning, three of them confessed Dennis Johnson had had died before Mm -hmm. he could even be brought to justice for this crime. So if they had just gone to the listen to the witness, they would have gotten him. They would have gotten him. Still would have had their clearance rate. Still would have put four guys away. You just wouldn't have put the wrong four guys away. Correct. That's what I'm saying. It's like the cops had it out for these particular four guys, specifically the 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 Jimerson guy. Mm-hmm. Well, God black. only knows how many run-ins they maybe have had with these young men. It's like I don't know the history there, but I can't imagine there was this none. whole case implies a lot. It really does. There's a lot left unsaid and unconfirmed, but I think you're probably on to something mm-hmm. very legitimate. So they were all convicted of this crime. The Ford Heights Four were exonerated and freed in 1996. <gasps> They'd gone into prison in like 1978. God. Robinson, Johnson, and Rodriguez were sentenced to life in prison. Johnson's sentence was later reduced to 65 years. I'm not sure why he may have provided some information or something they were in prison for so long that all the styles and fashions were just starting to come back around i know oh my I god know. their closet is fresh again yeah they, yeah, wear their own they could just come out and be like oh bell bottoms oh still, these are still in all right great i haven't missed a beat Mm-mm. Oh my God. So again, from Northwestern Law, quote, the Ford Heights Four then filed civil rights suits against the Cook County Sheriff's Police. Thank God. Through the discovery process in that litigation, it became apparent that Gray's false confession had been coerced. Mm-hmm. The police misconduct prompted Cook County to settle the men's claims for $36 million. <gasps> so this is the same county yeah. that my case. Cook County has a notorious history. Yeah, the mm-hmm. Chicago County. Yeah. The largest uh, such settlement in the United in United States history, at at least at that time. Damn, that's a in lot July, of money. It is a lot of money. In July of two thousand one, Gray's conviction was finally thrown out with a lengthy opinion by Circuit Court Judge William D. Neal. The Cook County State's Attorney Office Attorney's Office appealed the ruling, but the appeal was rendered moot in November of two thousand two when Illinois Governor George H. Ryan granted her a pardon based on innocence. So she had been sitting in jail. Still waiting to get out on, like, perjury charges and shit while these guys had been exonerated. No, I thought she was what? out in 87. Oh, wait. No, you're right. You're right. She but, was. But Sorry. she was pardoned. Sorry. She was, but like, she was... still a convicted felon. Correct. Correct. Sorry. Yes, you're correct. She yeah. was released on a deal in 87, but she still had all this on her record. Right. Yep. Okay. So he granted her a pardon based on innocence. The pardon qualified Gray for approximately $100,000 in automatic compensation from the Illinois Court of Claims and cleared the way for a civil rights claim brought on her behalf to proceed. Oh, a hundred sh- grand. That's there's just a, the automatic payout from the state. No, I know, but it's just but such a fucking slap in the face. It really is. She it's probably could pittance. still sue and get more. She did. Oh, good. She did. I'm not sure what the payout ended up being, mm-hmm. but- Someone did file on on her behalf a civil rights claim, mm-hmm. and I believe she also received compensation because again, she's not she doesn't have the capacity to go through all of these systems herself and to right. like get it's just it's so it makes it so much more disgusting to yeah. me. They essentially manipulated and 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 
and took advantage of a child. They preyed on this person. They preyed on her, knowing that she did not have the intellectual capacity to to advocate for herself. They plucked her out out at random. Pretty much, and, and then just when she fucked her whole life, when she, she tried happened to, like, hang around to with just these tell the truth, she got charged with murder and perjury, murder, rape, and perjury. Yeah, rape. Yeah, God, because she was there. In according to them, mm-hmm. so yeah, uh, Paula spent twenty four years in prison as an innocent, developmentally disabled black woman. I can't even begin to imagine how horrific that time must have been for her and for the other men convicted. And while I'm thrilled they were able to collect statement like settlements that would set them and their families up essentially for life, the reality is that no amount of money can ever yeah. repair the psychological harm of wrongful conviction. And I feel like every wrongful conviction is egregious. Yeah. And this just feels this Paula's situation just feels especially sickening to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. It's just so, like Lucy, like you said, it's so obvious that they like plucked her out and went, you'll be easy. You'll do. To manipulate. To manipulate. You'll, yeah. y- you'll fill they this hole on her. that we, we have. Can, we can get her to say whatever we want. Exactly. And solve this shit in five minutes and then go home and go to bed. And actually, you know what? Paula put up quite the fucking fight. Yeah, I will she say, did. Because mm-hmm. it took them two days of illegally holding her yep. and terrorizing her. The motel mm-hmm. thing is so fucking sick. It's to disgusting. get her to say what they wanted her to say. Yeah. Like, because uh, they knew that they probably wouldn't be able to hold her for 48 hours actually at jail because there'd be too mm-hmm. many checks and balances keeping them from doing that. Mm-hmm. And it just, so they just like- fucking. It just seems like she was kicked in to ensure that they got a that they got a confession from somebody Correct. to get these four guys. She yeah, was she just was like an extra. Linchpin. She was she the was linchpin. linchpin, and she happened to be connected to them in some way. I believe they like lived in the same neighborhood. They did know each other, mm-hmm. so she was okay. the right. She was the right for them linchpin. But it's mm-hmm. like eh, I don't know. It's fucked up. Shit like this just makes me deeply sad. And had those three lawyers not just picked that case up and been like, wait a minute, this is fucked up. Let's pursue this. Not even lawyers. They're not even journalists. Yeah, they're journalists. journalists. Yeah. They just, they, they picked this up. They brought it. They needed assistance with like the DNA testing. So I believe that's where they, they reached out to and worked with the Innocence Project. Mm -hmm. But I think they were just like working on a story for class. And this, the Ford Heights 4, was a really famous story, you know, 20 years ago. So they picked it. Imagine being a college student and then discovering sa- that. Saving four people's lives. I. And bringing I mean, three people to justice. I'm too it's tired. Amazing. I'm so tired. I, there is a picture on the drive, which will be on the blog, of uh, a couple members of the Ford Heights 4 with these journalism students. In a photo, and it's it's very sweet. Like, oh my god, it's they're clear, so young. Yeah, they're children. <gasps> I mean, like these girls are fucking babies. They're little college kids. The one on the right looks exactly like Kenyon. Yeah, exactly like Kenyon. Yeah, she does. <laughs> totally. Kind of scary, actually. Oh, it's a really sweet photo. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's my that's my case. That's a great segue to plug Justin Brooks's book one more time. It's called You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. Yep. yep. Highly recommend picking that shit up. Mm-hmm. 
Oh my god. Okay, well, this I'm was... gonna go up my Zoloft yep. again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The limit does not five, exist. I think 500 milligrams is probably sufficient, that, right? That's fine, That'll right? do. Yeah. <laughs> that'll do. Okay, okay, well. thank you for listening. Bye <laughs> <laughs> bye Thanks for listening to Wine and Crime. Our cover art is by Kala Yip. Music by Phil Young and Corey Wendell. Editing by Jonathan Camp. Check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at wineandcrimepod. If you have questions, answers, or recommendations to share, email us at wineandcrimepodcast at gmail. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, basically wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It is the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support, visit our Patreon page to keep this podcast and the wine flowing. Cheers! Cheers!